If you have a copy of Scripture today, open with me to Romans chapter 10. Romans 10. We began a new series uh, at the beginning of this year called For the Neighborhood and the Nations. And the idea for this series, the hope for this series, uh, was that our church would grow into the next stage of maturity in our evangelism and in our discipleship. We've never arrived, right? Not as individuals, not as a community. So we want to keep growing in our maturity there. Um, We want to be increasingly faithful to the call of God um, that he's placed on our lives, that he's placed on us as a church to to know what the gospel is, to know what the gospel does, to to know what a transformed life looks like, we talked about last week, and how we can be a church with with a gospel culture, how we can be a church committed to gospel proclamation. Um, This is important for us. And this morning, I want to get really practical. I want to talk about, uh, I want us to walk away, hopefully, more motivated to share the gospel, better equipped to share the gospel, that we would walk away understanding the story that we are called to proclaim and how to do it. So let me read for us from Romans chapter 10. This is Paul writing to the church there in Rome, and he says this, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of them all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And this is typical of Paul, especially in the book of Romans. He begins to ask these rhetorical questions. And he says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel. And he's not just talking about sort of formal preaching like you see up here. He's talking about for all Christians, how they are sharing, heralding that good news. So part of the question is in terms of evangelism and and what we're really after, what what does it mean to be a Christian? That may seem like a fairly straightforward question, and in some ways it is, but I think it's one that's worth considering. What, what are we really after here? What does it mean to be a Christian? I, I read one definition this week that I thought was helpful um, from Charles Hodge. He was a 19th century theologian and the, um, the principal at Princeton Theological Seminary. He wrote this, being a Christian means being so constrained by a sense of love of our divine Lord that we consecrate our lives to him. So it is being so constrained by a sense of the love of our divine Lord to us that we consecrate our lives to him. And and this is pulling from scripture in 2 Corinthians 5 where Paul says, The love of Christ constrains us since we have made this judgment that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all in order that the one who lives might no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. So there's a fundamental shift in terms of what that person's life is really after. So there's there's a sense in, in that, that Charles Hodge is saying, and then Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians, that we are, we are so constrained by God's love for us and our love for God that it transforms how we live. 
That, in fact, we live instead of bent towards ourselves, instead of focused on ourselves, instead of worshiping ourselves, we consecrate our lives to him. We, we live not for ourselves, but for the one who died for us and was raised for us. So being a Christian is not just agreeing to information. It's experiencing real spiritual transformation. Being a Christian uh, is more than moral compliance, right? It's about true conversion. It involves more than just remorse over sin, but a real repentance from sin. Uh, it's, it's about more than merely doing what's good, but about delighting in the one who is perfect. It's about worship. It's about what we worship and who we worship. This is effectively what we're after in evangelism. We're not trying to win an argument. We're trying to win a soul. The goal is not just getting one more person to join our camp. The goal is that one more soul in this universe will be bent towards their creator in worship. We're really after worship. John Piper famously says that missions exist because worship doesn't. Right, does that make sense to you? Missions exist because worship doesn't. He goes on to say, worship is ultimate, not missions. Because God is ultimate and not man. When this age is over and countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God and worship, then missions will be no more. That's what we're after. That is our motivation. Yes, of course, we should motiv be motivated by our desire to be obedient to the call that God's placed on our life. Of course, we should be motivated by our love uh, of our neighbors and our family and our friends, the nations. But what really supports that, what, what supports that call, what supports that love for our neighbors and the nations, what, what fuels all this is ultimately our love for God and our desire for him to be worshipped by every man, woman, and child, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. One writer put it this way, that love for God is the only sufficient motive for evangelism. He says, if it's, if it's self-love, that will give way to self-centeredness. If it's, if it's love for the lost, that will fail ultimately with those whom we cannot love. Or when difficulties seem insurmountable, only a deep love for God will keep us following his way. Declaring his gospel when, when our human resources fail. Only our love for God, and more importantly, his love for us, will keep us from the dangers which beset us. When the desire for popularity with men, the, our desperate need to succeed in human terms, when it tempts us to water down the gospel or to make it more palatable to others, then only if we love God will we stand by the truth of the scripture. That is what will keep us motivated. We are motivated by our love of God. We are constrained by that love to give our lives over to him. And what we are calling people to is a life of worship, not merely a life of obedience. Because we first, as Christians, because we first know the gospel, because we are transformed by the gospel, then we are compelled to share this gospel. There really is someone worth worshiping. So why is it so difficult? And it is, right, for many of us. 
sharing our faith, sharing the gospel, evangelizing. Why is that so difficult? Now, now of course, uh, maybe it's not difficult for everybody. I know that there are some people, some people even in this room, um, that are uniquely wired, uniquely gifted. Like, you just can't shut them up. Like, wherever they're at, they are telling somebody about Jesus, right? But that's the anomaly. That's not the norm for many of us. For many of us, it's a struggle. And yet the the call to evangelize in Scripture, this is important for us to know, the call to evangelize in Scripture is not just a call to those who are uniquely gifted or uniquely wired to evangelize. This call is extended to all those who have been evangelized themselves. So why is it so difficult for us? Let me give you just two, two things that I think prevent us from from sharing the gospel. Now, clearly, there are, there are many things that hold us back from sharing the gospel. There are many thing, reasons for our hesitancy or our disobedience, uh, many, many obstacles. But let me give you just two that I think in some ways, at least for me, get to the heart of the matter. And they are these two. I think I may have them on the screen. A lack of courage and a lack of compassion. A lack of courage and a lack of compassion. So we, we lack a courage in the sense that we, we worry we won't have all the answers, right? We're not going to have all the answers. Again, we're not just trying to win an argument. We're trying to win a soul. We're, we're afraid that we'll look stupid or we're afraid that we don't know our Bibles well enough and we'll get stumped. We think that, that people will think we're intolerant or narrow-minded. We're afraid. We're afraid to fail. We're, we're afraid about what it might cost us, and so we keep silent. We lack courage. Again, and all of that is lacking information, lacking uh, knowledge, lacking experience. All of that is wrapped up into us ultimately just lacking the courage to let, to, for us to be obedient to what God is calling us to and to trust in God to do what only God can do in saving souls. And underneath this lack of courage is really a lack of compassion. It's, it's a lack of compassion. We become apathetic. We, we busy ourselves. We just get on with our own lives, right? We drift from our times of prayer and times of meditation on Scripture. We lack compassion. One, one writer, Pastor Stephen Lee, wrote an article that I read recently. He said, we lack compassion for the loss. We have, we have too many of us have long forgotten what it really means to live without hope. To live lost, to live apart from Christ. We rarely consider that those who do not obey Christ will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. And that's a quote from 2 Thessalonians 1.9. We just don't care that much. We might say we care. But we rarely cry out to God for the salvation of our lost neighbors, or of, our, of, our, of our lost co-workers, our lost classmates, our, last, our lost family members. Paul's compassion in Romans 9 is utterly foreign to us, where he says, I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. This, this burning desire in him, this, this overwhelming compassion in him, that he wants those around him to know God like he knows him, for them to worship for them to know there's something worth worshiping. Some of you guys may know uh, Penn Gillette from the famous uh, comedian, magician duo, Penn and Teller. I think I may have a picture of him up here. Uh, I think I might. 
No? There he is. He's the big one, right? Penn. Um, he is, and some of you know this, he is a, a vocal atheist. In fact, in, a, in an essay he, he wrote and read on NPR a few years ago, he says, I am beyond atheism. And he wrote this, these beautiful words, very compelling words, commenting on evangelism. Uh, Teller says this, uh, um, uh, Penn says this. He says, I have always said, you know, that I don't respect people who don't proselytize or don't evangelize. Let me read that again. I've always said, I don't respect people who don't evangelize. I don't respect that at all. If you actually believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and that people could actually be going to hell, or people could be getting eternal life, or whatever you call it, and you think that, well, it's not really worth saying anything about it because it might be socially awkward. And atheists, they think that people who they they think that people shouldn't evangelize, saying you should just leave me alone. Let me believe what I want to believe. Keep your religion to yourself. Penn says, how much do you have to hate somebody? How much do you have to hate somebody to not evangelize them? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that eternal, everlasting life is possible and not tell them about it? I mean, if you, if, if, uh, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you to hit you, to kill you, and you didn't believe it, and that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point at which I would just tackle you to save you. And this stuff is so much more important, says Penn. What do we really believe about eternity? What does our belief about eternity mean in terms of how we are compelled to share this good news? Have we considered the consequences? Where is our compassion for the lost? The stakes are too high to keep silent. Even this, this noted atheist, he's, he's looking at Christians going, I, if they really believe this stuff, why wouldn't they be telling everybody about it? If they really believe that this is as serious as the scriptures say, how could they keep silent? How much would they have to hate somebody to keep silent about it? Charles Spurgeon says, and I may have this quote up on the screen, every Christian here is either a missionary or an imposter. So which are you? Well, what does it look like? What does it look like for us to share our faith, to evangelize the lost, to talk about the gospel? Now, we, we talked about what the gospel is and what the gospel does, but... But what about evangelism? What does it really look like? I have this quote here from uh, Max Stiles in his book on evangelism, this great short little book I highly recommend to you. He says this, that evangelism is teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. It's a good definition. That evangelism is teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. And if, you, if you've missed the last few weeks, we spent a great deal of our time talking about what the gospel is, understanding the gospel, and evangelism is teaching that gospel with the aim to persuade. You guys may have heard the quote before, uh, frequently misattributed to St. Francis of Assisi, preach always, and if necessary, use, use words. Have you heard that quote before? It's catchy. It's clever, right? It's just not very biblical. That's not what the scriptures call us to. One writer says evangelism means communicating the good news of King Jesus, and it always requires words. 
He says, yes, of course Christians are called to adorn the gospel with actions, just like Paul says in Titus 2. But our actions are not the gospel. No amount of righteous living can replace the necessity of verbal proclamation of the gospel about God's saving achievement in Christ. Sharing the gospel means sharing the gospel. Sharing the story of Christ. The good news that God saved sinners and the good news of how he did it. My friend Jonathan Dotson wrote an article a few years ago on gospel metaphors. And he, he says this, to, this is what we're offering to those who don't know Christ, to those searching for acceptance in all the wrong places. We can, port th we can point them to the perfect acceptance found in the gospel of justification. To those searching for fulfilling relationships, we can point them to a profound, personal, intimate union with Christ. To those who struggle with tolerance, we can show them the uniqueness of Christ in the gospel of redemption. To those who fear the disapproval or the demand of applause from others, we can share the gospel of adoption, that they can be brought in by grace. They, they're offered unending, enduring approval, which produces a humble confidence in our God. To anyone longing for a new start, we can tell them there is hope of new creation. Being made right Understanding our identity and our purpose. This is what we're all after, right? Being made right, understanding who we are, who we were made to be, understanding what, what, is, what does life look like beyond this place, knowing, knowing that there's some meaning and purpose and hope in the midst of suffering and pain. This is what we're all after. Now, all of those questions can only and finally be answered in Christ. Every other answer is found wanting. So how do we do it? How do we do it? How do we share this good news with the aim to persuade? I'll give you just a few things here. We are called to pray for the lost, to pursue opportunities to share the gospel, and then to persist in love. Pray for the lost, pursue opportunities, and persist in love. If you were here with us a couple weeks ago, I think this was the first week uh, the first sermon of this series, I introduced this idea of who's your three, who's your two, who's your one. You guys remember this? I said, who's your three, who's your two, and who's your one? And hopefully, uh, really throughout the year, and this may just be a part of the language that we regularly use at Redeemer moving forward, but what we mean by, when we say three, when we say who's your three, what we mean is, um, who, who, is that, who is that community that you've allowed yourself to be a part of? Not just sitting in a chair in church on Sunday, but who, who are those three, four, five people that you're, you're committed to having a discipleship-focused relationship with? Whether it's a community group, or a Sunday school, or a discipleship group, or a Bible study. Are you, who, who's your three? Who's your three? And when we talk about two, we're talking about who are those two people? For those who are Christians, who are those two non-Christian people that you are praying for, that you are looking for opportunities to serve, looking for opportunities to love? Have you written their names down? Are you picturing their faces? Are you praying for them? And by one we mean for Christians, who is that one person that you're committed to discipling? A co-worker, maybe a friend, maybe a, a child, 
a spouse? Who's your three? Who's your two? Who's your one? C.S. Lewis said, I, I, have, I have two lists of names in my prayers. For those whose conversions I still pray, and for those whose conversions I give thanks. And I love watching names go from one list to the other. Are we praying for the lost? Are we actively thinking about the lost? Are we spending time reading their names, thinking about their faces, praying for them? George Barna says, A church that strives to evangelize its community without saturating its efforts in prayer is like a race car that jumps, is like a race car driver who jumps into his car at the starting line and discovers that his tank has not been filled with gas. This is the first step. Some people even call this pre-evangelism, right? It's, it's Christians spending time with the Lord on behalf of their lost friends and neighbors. So we pray for the lost, but we also pursue opportunities. We pursue opportunities. We pursue opportunities to spend time together, to share a meal together, to have coffee together, to play golf together, to hunt together, whatever your thing is, right? To get the kids together to play, to sit together at the soccer practice, maybe even to pray together. I've, I've been in the ministry, this is 2019 now, I've been in the ministry vocationally for 20 years this year. I started when I was very young. 20 years, and in 20 years I've heard many, 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 many stories of how people have come to faith, right? It's a, it's a great bliss, blessing and privilege that I get as a pastor. And I can tell you that there is a, a consistent theme and pattern to the vast majority of these stories. And it, it typically sounds like this, that someone befriended me. Someone asked me to lunch. Someone gave me a Bible. Someone pointed me to a few key passages in the Bible to start reading. Someone offered to pray with me. Someone sat and prayed with me. That's how the vast majority of the conversations go when people share their story about how they came to faith. This isn't rocket science, right? This is Christians being awake and being intentional about there, there are people around them that, who don't know God, who don't have hope, who are struggling to make sense of this life, the consequences are high for eternity, and we don't have to have the answers. Almost never is the case that someone says, I became a Christian because someone just argued me into it. They just beat me. Almost never. Almost never. Of course, there's an intellectual component to it. There's a rational component to it. There's an emotional component to it. All of that is true, but, but don't make it harder than it is. It's just a matter of, will you pray with someone? Will you share scripture with someone? Will you tell the story of God to someone? It's so simple and so practical, isn't it? It's not rocket science. It's humble obedience. The good news is that God does the heavy lifting, right? God's working on people before we ever show up on the scene. God's working in and through us while we're on the scene. God's working after we leave. It's God who does the heavy lifting. It's God who saves. The burden of transformation, hear this church, the burden of transformation is not on you. It's on him. It's on him. He calls us to open our mouths, but it's his job to open hearts. We invest by 
pursuing these opportunities, right? That word is critical there. We're praying for the lost, and then we're pursuing opportunities. We're not just waiting for opportunities, but we're making ourselves available, making ourselves available, available to be interrupted or inconvenienced. We're, we're wagering our time and our money and our reputation and our resources, and possibly, depending on where God calls us, even our safety to tell people the good news of Jesus. We don't wait for opportunities. We, we discipline ourselves to pursue them. In his book on the spiritual disciplines, Don Whitney talks about evangelism as a discipline. He says evangelism is a natural overflow of the Christian life. We should all be able to talk about what the Lord has done for us and what he means to us. But evangelism is also a discipline. It's a discipline. It's a discipline that we have to uh, discipline ourselves in. We need to get ourselves in the context of evangelism. We must not just wait for those opportunities. We must pursue them. I read a sermon by uh, our friend and new uh, drummer, Casey Cease, uh, this week, and he talked about uh, this very simple way to uh, the simple gospel proclamation through a single text in the book of Romans, in Romans 6, 23. And I think I have this uh, passage on the screen. Maybe we can pull it up on the screen. This is a very famous passage, and in this passage, so, so if, you, if you just learn one verse, if you just learn one verse, what if you learned this verse? What if you had this verse committed to memory? For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Some of us have been in church a while, and we maybe have even memorized that, maybe as a kid in Sunday school or as an adult. And so that, that simple sentence can lose its power. But that sentence alone, it begins to uh, encompass all of the gospel. So the wages of sin is death. Sin is our rebellion against God. It's our rebellion against our Creator. Sin is our desire to be gods over our own lives. Sin is disobedience. Sin is the cancer in every man, woman, and child. And we've worked hard at our sin, right? We've worked hard at our sin and we've earned a good wage for it. When what we've earned is death. What we've earned is punishment. What we've earned is eternal separation from God. This is the fundamental problem of the universe, sin. And it's not just the fundamental problem of the universe out there, external in the world. It's also the fundamental problem of the universe inside us. So for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God, right? So the problem is what we've earned by our sin, death, but the solution is the free gift that God offers to us. The very God that we've rebelled against. The very God we've shaken our fist at, he gives us this gift free. It's on the house. He offers us a way back to him. This is unearned favor. This is undeserved goodness. This is grace. It's not something we earn like we earned with our sin. This is grace. And this gift is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So this, this free gift that God gives is eternal life. And we've talked before that eternal life is not just about um, the length of life. It's also about the quality of life. This is abundant life. This is forever life. This is unending life. This is joyful life. This is restorative life. 
And it's not found in our goodness. It's not found in our behavior. It's not even found in ourselves at all, right? It's the free gift of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's found only in Him. So everybody in the world is looking for this free gift. Everybody in the world is looking for something they can't earn and they don't deserve. But we, we need it. We want it. We're desperate for some meaning and for some hope and some forgiveness. And it's only found in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is, he is not only our creator, he is also our anointed king, the Christ. And he is the rightful Lord of our lives. Of every minute of our lives. Of every part of our lives. And so this is what we're offering in a simple gospel proclamation. This is the good news of what Jesus has done for us. Will you trust him? Will you plead for others to trust him? Will you consider the consequences? So not only do we pray for the lost, do we pursue opportunities, but we persist in love. How long are you willing to invest? How many conversations are you willing to have? How much rejection are you willing to experience? How many years might it take? I know for, for some of us in here, we pray for people for years and years and years and years. And then we've seen God grab somebody and transform them. How much failure are you willing to endure? How much, how much rejection, how much indifference, l- lack of interest, how much of that are you willing to endure, how, how, how willing are you to persist in love? Evangelism is not easy. It requires loving and compassionate and enduring persistence. But the good news is that we don't bear the burden of gospel fruit, right? Only the burden of gospel faithfulness. There was an article I read, uh, actually, just a week or so ago. It's called Evangelism. Is Evangelism Harder Than It Used to Be? Written by a guy named Randy Newman. And he says, evangelism isn't just difficult. It's impossible. And that's actually liberating. Evangelism isn't just difficult. It's impossible. And that's actually liberating. Because when we remember that evangelism involves talking to people who are spiritually dead... And we remember that we are asking God to do what only God can do, raise the dead. When we recall that the devil has blinded people and we ask God to lift their veil, when we see that people need more than just answers, we do our best to give them good answers, right? We do our best to answer their objections. But we are also begging God to soften their hearts. We're begging God to do what only God can do. We're not ignoring the obstacles that we face. But let us not doubt the God who cuts through these obstacles with his blinding glory. It is God who does the heavy lifting. But we are called to tell. We are called to open our mouths. And God does the work of opening people's hearts. We rest in the sovereignty of God, in and especially in evangelism. We rest in the sovereignty of God to save sinners, to save our children, to save our parents or our neighbors or our friends. We must be faithful to open our mouths. We must trust God to be faithful to open their hearts. Paul says in Romans 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 
What's more important than that, church? We have, we have thoughtful atheists looking around, scratching their heads, saying, why aren't they telling me about this? Do they really believe it? Do we really believe it, church?